HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking about Rotten, a new food crime docuseries from Netflix that came out in early January. Rotten covers some of the greatest hits in food crime and fraud, shining a light on the pervasive greed and misconduct behind some of the world's biggest corporations and the global food production industry. From honey to chicken to cod, this series will surprise and shock you, and hopefully encourage you to become a more informed consumer. Joining me in the studio today to unpack these issues and what it was like to work on this super interesting project is Christine Hani, the investigative reporter on the series, who also now writes about food and agriculture for Politico. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So excited you're here, and thank you for coming all the way to, to Bushwick. Yes, it's great <laughs> to be here. Thanks. Um, okay, so how did you become involved in this series, and what was it like working on it? This series was amazing to work on. I was previously a media desk reporter at the New York Times, and when I was on maternity leave, I started watching Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown and just found it beautiful and fascinating. And so my friend James Osland at Sever said, let me introduce you to the owners. So I started talking with um, with one of the partners there and said, why don't we do something about um, the you know food and crime? And so uh, I left the Times and started investigating this world and mm-hmm. this underworld of crime and food. And we launched that as a web series in 2015 that did incredibly well on YouTube and that really took off. Uh, We were threatened by Christie's with litigation for our wine fraud investigating. And and we helped a government official from France get his job back. And then by 2016, uh, the web series was purchased by Netflix. So you... 
you made some people mad. You, you helped <laughs> some people, people and you mad, were like, yes. this has legs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Why crime specifically? What like tipped you off? I mean, not <laughs> tipped you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, food is the, the kind of hot area if you're a criminal right now. And so... <laughs> so yeah, hot right now. It's really hot. <laughs> not to encourage, you know, listeners <laughs> to go into that industry. But, um, but what I had found is I had covered quite a bit of crime in my reporting career. I'd sent two people to prison and... And then when I started digging into food, I saw that there's a lot of crime and there's not a lot of prison time that comes with that. So you can commit some pretty extensive crimes and and affect our food supply without having the penalties if you're a drug dealer or a murderer. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating and very rich field to kind of dive into. Why is that? I know this is a, that's a huge broad question but like why do you think it you know food you know criminals get off easier than others is that the way that our legal system is structured is it just not you know not really handled very often or well i think our government has only so many resources that it can devote to the regulation of food and that you have a lot of workers are doing the best they can but they have limited resources and so and it's not a direct relationship. So if you look at uh, like the Peanut Corporation of America case, you have executives who ran a dirty peanut factory and that ultimately killed people. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't that, you know, the head of the company went out and shot someone. So they're much more kind of evolved and complex um, (laughs) crimes that take place. Um, There's six episodes. Can you give us um, an overview, you know, super brief overview kind of of the general topics that that topic that was covered so maybe starting with the honey episode yes the honey episode uh looks into honeygate which is the largest food fraud case in u.s history and um it's a fascinating story about fraud and how so much of our honey is corrupted and um it includes fugitives and it includes people who were convicted it's a great tale and then peanuts the peanut problem. Yes. What's really fascinating about what's happening with peanuts right now is how we have this incredible explosion in peanut allergies around the world. And in the UK, if you if you give someone knowingly with an allergy peanuts, it's considered a crime. You can go to prison. And we're not there in the same way in the US. Wow. Um, garlic was the other, was the third. Yes. Uh, the episode on garlic looks at the world of garlic in the U.S. versus China, and it tells the tale of kind of small farmers in China competing against small farmers in the U.S. and the large corporate Goliaths in between them. Okay. Um, Milk? Fast. I love talking about dairy, by the way. We're not going to in this show so much today right now, but um, so, yeah. But Yes, it's a great story. It's about the kind of globalization of our dairy industry and how farmers in the U.S. have then had to turn to alternatives to kind of make things work financially, like raw milk and selling a raw milk. But that also can be a dangerous path to go down. Okay. And then the last two, which are the ones that we'll focus a little bit more on today in depth. One is an episode on chicken, and then the other, cod. Yes. Uh, So starting with chicken, the chicken episode looks at a crime of one of the biggest chicken deaths and how um, it was kind of, it looked like it was farmer pitted against farmer in the South, but it also traces back to this global multinational Brazilian company that is at been at the heart of Brazilian scandals. And finally, the cod episode, cod is dead, tells the tale of the cod father who is a criminal who's flouted federal regulations for decades, but it also tells the broader tale of 
of selling, uh, being a fisherman today, and especially in kind of the world we live in. How did you, you know, how did these topics specifically kind of get chosen to be reported on? Is that these are the major kind of issues or, or, or crimes that have been committed? Or did you have a wider array to change to choose from and just focus on these? Sadly, for our food supply, we had a wider array to choose from. But these had some of the most compelling uh, characters and narratives and um, were also the most kind of broadly consumed products. So that that all informed what we did for the six episodes. Okay, so speaking of broadly um, consumed products, let's, let's get into the Cod is Dead episode. And um, let's uh, start with the numbers. Uh, so tell us about the size of the fishing industry in general. How has demand changed over the past 50 years? And where does our fish come from? So the fishing industry was a vastly growing industry that, you know, did well through the 70s um, as there were kind of incentives for fishermen to kind of build their businesses, build their practices. Uh, in terms of where our fish comes from, it's gone from something about like 50% of our fish was imported to 95% of the fish we now consume in America is um, is foreign. That's we, incredible. It's absolutely incredible, and, yes. Uh, people just don't know. I can't say it enough. Like, that's huge. It's huge, yes. And there's also, you know, fish goes through so many different paths that, so for example, you could have um, squid that's caught off the shores of Montauk and then it's uh, flown to China mm-hmm. or it's shipped to China to be packaged and then it's shipped back to the U.S. So that would be where your squid ends up that's on your plate if you have a calamari. Um, so it's an incredible international um, processing experience that happens with fish. Right. And I was also surprised to learn that the U.S. is the second largest consumer next to China of seafood in general, which I didn't I didn't really realize. I thought we didn't eat very much fish in this country. Yeah, we are surprising consumers of fish. Um, so and then it, and then the industry has like what doubled in the, in the past 50 years in terms of how much we've consumed. It, it has significantly increased and it we're significantly more dependent on foreign fish. This episode touches on like kind of a lot of interrelated issues, um, you know, small versus large fishermen, consolidation, um, and, and all international trade issues and all really through the lens of regulation and how regulations have, sh- have shaped the industry over the past 50 years. What is this global food crisis and when did it begin? So or the, the fish, global the fish global crisis. The global fish crisis. I mean, basically uh, what we really explore in our Netflix film is how we used to have these seas kind of filled with, you know, rich with fish in them and that we just had tremendous amounts of overfishing that took place. And um, it used to be you had kind of foreign fishermen coming in and fishing off our waters. Then there were protections in place for that. Um, And there were incentives to get fishermen out and and fishing. But then when we found that we were losing a lot of our fish and that things were getting depleted, there were different policies and programs brought into place. One thing we mentioned in our episode is the catch share program, which Mm -hmm. puts kind of limits on fish. But we also, in the Netflix episode, really explore um, talking to the fishermen about, well, does that work? And so we feature one fisherman who shows what the limits are and how much he can actually legally fish and how it's that. That's not a sustainable job for him anymore. Mm-hmm. So this gets to like small versus large fishermen. It seems like this catch share kind of program uh, that was put in place sort of gave rise to this debate about public versus private, um, you know, and, and whether or not the basically like who 
owns the ocean and the fish in the ocean, and and it allowed for kind of um, the privatization of what a lot of fishermen see as a resource that shouldn't be privatized, um, and also kind of has helped drive down, drive out some of the smaller players. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's really hard to survive in a field like this. Um, you do have to have some form of economy of scale to survive. That's and that's. Carlos Rafael, the card codfather, who's the um, fisherman we feature from New Bedford, he was wonderful at kind of manipulating the system, the catch and the catch share system, the catch share system, and manipulating um, and and just kind of consolidating and getting all the permits uh, for fishing in his name, and so that kind of gave him power. As whereas a lot of small fishermen have just had to kind of go away. And the catch share program, just to drill down on that a little bit more, that that looks like. You know, what is that? Is that just a limit on the number, the type of fish you can have or um, like, you know, from a permitting perspective, like how much you can fish, the type of fish that you can. So the cash share system would limit how much fish you could fish in a season or a type of fish. Um, And so that's the other thing. You're going after a certain type of fish. And, you know, what do you do if you don't get that fish? Do you just kind of throw it back? Mm -hmm. But how is that allowed for larger corporations to take over? Um, well, if larger corporations have more permits and the permits are all consolidated with them, then they, they can kind of manage that better. And, yeah. The, how, how do they get the, you know, do they buy them? The they buy the permits because you need money. In a consolidating industry, how do you survive? You have money. Okay. So they buy yeah. these, they buy up all of these permits. permits. And so that's how they continue to, to grow. So can you even make a, I mean, it seems like you go through this series, um, it talks about the way they talk about kind of fishermen is that it represents a sort of like American dream. And, you know, you used to be able to make like a really good living off of this way of life. And now that is just sort of no longer like there are no small fishermen, really. In our reporting, we've seen very few small fishermen who can actually survive. That's actually something you see across all the episodes. And I find in my reporting, it is very hard to survive in um, in the food space if you're a small, earnest fisherman or farmer. Um, and so, what did the Codfather do, basically? You know, to and he, is he is he currently incarcerated? Yep, he's in federal prison right now in uh, Massachusetts. He's actually in the same federal prison as um, uh, a Jack DeCoster. This. Uh, guy who poisoned people with his eggs over a 30-year period. So they have these these big food criminals, wow. and they're all in the same place. <laughs> and uh, I think I they're also... I feel about that. <laughs> information sharing. Yeah, on. they're also in the same federal prison right now as Anthony <laughs> Weiner. So everyone's together. It's a, it's a moment. Um, One big happy family. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, so what he really did, and it's fascinating, he really flouted these federal re- fishing regulations. So as the federal government tried to come in and protect our our waters, he would um, he would basically lie about the fish that he caught. So he might say, I caught X type of fish when he caught Y. Mm-hmm. And he would put a different name on it just so that he appeared to be selling, you know, fishing his quotas um, or meeting his quotas. The other thing is, that, and this is a theme that you see across food fraud, is it's not just one thing. So he flouted the federal fishing regulations. He also didn't necessarily pay his workers what they were owed. He also didn't use like the proper OSHA equipment. And so like he had a worker who nearly burned to death because he bought um, protective equipment for him to clean a boat um, that he bought at a garage sale. So you see across these crimes, like a whole variety of things that people do that are criminal. I mean, there, you know, also for my Freedom of Information Act requests, the Codfather would do stuff like he would 
have boats that caught um, lobsters, egg-bearing lobsters, so that can kind of help wipe out our, you know, our lobster population long term. He did many, many bad things. So one of the one of the things that I, I want to get back to talking about just kind of like the quality of the fish. So so much of our fish is imported, yeah, um, and a lot of times that quality is just not the same as what you will find if it's you know fished by like a small local fisherman for you know per se. So can you tell me a little bit about what that looks like? You know, like what are what does low quality fish look like, and what kinds of fish do we see showing up that are. Um, you know, indicative of kind of that bad quality coming in? We see all, we see low quality fish kind of across the board um, because also one of the things is that if it's caught, it's kind of frozen repeatedly. And we bring this up in the film as well. So it's frozen, defrosted, you know, multiple times. I'm sure you've, we've all had some type of salmon that you could tell was freeze, you know, freeze freeze dried and then it's very dry. There's a lot of (laughs) seafood especially is particularly like, the quality um, is really gets worse and worse the more you freeze it. Like it's very sensitive to being frozen. I can believe that. Yeah, and then there's a lot of distortion that happens where they'll kind of almost put like a saline in the fish to inflate the weight, um, <laughs> and so you have a lot of manipulation happening that way. You also have things like you know your fish that's coming, your shrimp specifically that's coming from places like Thailand that's had a history of using slave labor and. Um, and being fished in polluted waters. So you have, a, it really depends on the fish, but you have problems kind of happening across the board. And I was surprised to know that the U.S. has some of the highest, well, they have like some of the strictest standards for food being imported, and they turn away a lot of this, a lot of the fish being imported. Even though we have so much of it coming in, they also turn away so much of it. Yeah, they're, you know, with the limited resources the government has, they do the best they can to to kind of regulate and turn away this this kind of problematic fish um and i it's you you talked about in the in the um in the documentary that it's it's because of filth which is a message i feel that's why it's you know uh you know rejected which i feel like is something that we need to keep talking about again and again for people to really let that sink in right right (laughs) so how does this work in terms of this fish that's coming into the Uh, We have kind of consolidation. Is that consolidation in the industry in the U.S.? Or is that like, um, are those international companies similar to kind of the issue that we saw that you talked about in the garlic episode where it's Chinese companies, um, you know, consolidating and kind of dumping really cheap product in the U.S.? Is is it international companies um, with with the fisheries or is it mainly U.S. based? We have consolidation happening kind of all over the world. And in terms of the cat share system, that's not um, specific just to the U.S. That's We feature in our film, um, Iceland has had extensive consolidation with um, the cat share program there. Mm-hmm. And we follow a lovely fisherman who has found his industry and all the boats kind of just disappear with consolidation. But it was actually, their argument is that it could be a good thing, you know. They like the the effects of consolidation. The effects of this catch share program was positive for their fisheries. Yes, there's been you know both sides to this argument that you're kind of running more efficient business, kind of, kind of coming from like a private equity perspective. You know, if you consolidate, you're running, you'll have more economies of scale. You run things more efficiently. But the result is that. You know, these fisheries have kind of rebounded and the economy improved. And so it seems like that might be a good thing. I think there's definitely two sides to it. So there's um, there can be consolidation. There are arguments that fisheries, some fisheries have improved Mm -hmm. and um, rebounded. 
Um, but then you also have kind of taken away a lot of the small time fishermen. I mean, is it a quality issue also in terms of, you know, small fishermen versus these larger, these larger companies? I guess the larger companies, the argument is if they've been successful under catch shares, um, you know, your the, the fishing stocks are returning and mm-hmm. so you're going to have more fish, um, that could be kind of tied to quality if you just have more fish swimming in your sea. Um, but the, you know, the young, the traditional fishermen might argue that they're, um, they've always been kind of producing a quality product. How do we limit this consolidation? I mean, it seems like the catch your program's here to stay. It is, I mean, it's, it's implemented by the federal government, is it not? Um, it's actually done in a regional level, so it's not like cat shares are happening all over the country. Um, oh. we, we feature in, um, we, we really concentrate a lot of our filming on New Bedford and then in Iceland. So, so can you repeat the question to me again? What, uh, what, how do you kind of prevent against this consolidation, you know, in industry? Because it... Actually, wait. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, what do what do we do to to limit consolidation? Well, one thing I did find in the reporting was that the fishermen, they're smaller. They don't have the resources that a large private equity company would have, but they're also, in some ways, helping themselves and making sure consolidation doesn't happen too quickly. Because they're not the easiest people to kind of buy out and consolidate. And <laughs> there was one particular character who I loved. What was his name? Who's, I mean, he swore more than anybody I've ever met, you know, or heard in my life, which is why I liked him. Yeah, like- he's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, he's my buddy. He, um, so, so they're very feisty. So yeah. that's why I'm saying, like, they're not going to be walked over in a way. And I know that there was one private equity company that wanted to buy up all of these fishermen and scallop boats and it's been kind of slow from what I've seen like looking at their press releases and their actual volume of transactions Mm -hmm. and that's because of um you know their nature (laughs) their nature why did you focus on it was it New Bedford Massachusetts yeah New Bedford was like a great place to focus because that's where Carlos Rafael was so we had this one rich character who was involved in this criminal case and who was this embodied the the complete flouting and questioning of the federal regulatory system that it ta- that that's out there and you so you said just a, a minute ago that this is not the catch shares program is not national i thought it was national it, it's done it's it, um a lot of fishing is um broken into divisions and it's done on regional levels and do you say the same issues um with catcher throughout the country or are there are there you know pockets where it has been really successful yeah groups we've interviewed have said that it has definitely been more successful i mean you have fishing is very different like when you look at the different coasts like if you explore fishing in alaska versus fishing in new england they're they're almost like different industries so um if you look advocates of catch shares can will absolutely cite a specific fish where they've been able to restore the the stocks of and in areas where it has worked. Okay. All right. Well, all in all, a, a f- super fascinating episode. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about chicken. Um, and uh, if we've got time, we'll touch on the uh, honey episode as well. Great. More, more good things coming up. Stay tuned. Thanks. I don't 
Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Christine Haney about the new Netflix series, Rotten, for which she was the investigative reporter. All right, so let's let's talk about chicken. Um, it's something that is, you know, I mean, I think that in terms of when you talk about food, food issues, uh, chicken is always at the top of the list, be it for animal welfare issues or, or whatnot. But um, let's, uh, this really does a fascinating dive into how how it works you know what it looks like to mm-hmm. how the industry works by and large which i think is there is very little visibility to um so let's okay let's start with the um numbers basically we eat a ton of chicken in this <laughs> we country eat a ton of chicken yes. yeah safe to say <laughs> <laughs> who are the major players in the chicken industry so there's basically only three to four companies that dominate the entire chicken industry and they control every part of the chicken industry except the actual the growth of the chicken industry so those um, chickens then go to growers and i'm speaking in my capacity of the reporting at netflix on this mm-hmm. um so uh so basically, I am a major multinational chicken company. I drop the chicks off with a farmer so or they're, a grower. They're, so they're born under your control. They're born under my control. Okay. And then they're basically farmed out to a farmer. Like who, the next day? W- with it, yeah, yeah, within days. And then um, the grower raises the chicken. Uh-huh. And then... Me with my big company, I come in a truck and I pick up the chickens and I do all the processing and packaging and delivering them to um, to your grocery store. So it sounds like it's vertically integrated except this one aspect. It's Yeah, it's pretty much one company except this aspect um, where you have um, growers across the country actually taking care of the um, and raising the chickens. Why? Why, that seems I don't like. Are these birds owned still by the company, or I mean, yeah, they they have to be. They're just the birds little, are owned. Yeah, they're almost like farmed out. It's almost like daycare for the the chickens until they reach a certain age. Why would that? Is that just like the most efficient thing from an economic standpoint? Is that the most, you know, the most expensive part of the process? That's the most cost effective way to raise a chicken to um, to farm it out, give it to a grower who will take care of them. So we feature some of these growers in our films, and what they do is um, chicken companies typically employ the f- tournament system. So if you and I were both chicken farmers, we would there would be a pot of money of how much we could 
you know, receive mm-hmm. once our chickens are raised based on how much they weigh, you know, how, and all these other kind of requirements. And, um, and let's say your chickens look better than mine. You would, the money owed to me would be given to you more. So we would be in direct competition with each other, almost kind of rivals, penny for penny. The farmers. Yes, the farmers. How, who determines who gets what birds? That's a great question. So the farmers, uh, the companies, the corporations will give, will be able to decide which birds are given to which farmers. I'm assuming not all birds are created equal. And it's fair to say not all birds are created equal. Yes. So, so what is that? So that just means that some, that seems like some farmers are set up for, not for success, as they <laughs> say in the yes. corporate speak. <laughs> yeah, some farmers are not set up for success. And then you also have newer farmers who might be new to kind of chicken farming and they're going to have newer equipment. Mm-hmm. And so they're farmer, they're, you know, they're going to have like newer toys at their daycare. <laughs> they're going to have yeah. like the resources to, to have chickens who succeed more and bring in more money. Are there any, um, and so this represents the bulk of the way that chickens are raised in this, in this country, this the kind of vast, vast, vast majority of chickens in this country. Um, so you feature in the episode two particular farmers and kind of their, their story, um, each of their stories, which were similar. Can you tell us a little bit about these two characters and what happened to them? What happened to them was in, they both found that in the middle of the night, all of their hundreds of thousands of chickens had been killed. Um, and, they were trying to find out why. And what they learned was that um, they believe a um, rival chicken farmer who was not performing as well in the, under the tournament system uh, broke into their chicken houses and with uh, manipulated the heating system to make it either too hot or too cold for their chickens and killed them all off. Uh-huh. So, um, so, and to the corporate entities, these, com- these chicken farmers just weren't able to deliver the goods so their compensation was you know materially affected for that um that flock so they were punished for something that happened to yes, them that's and what I would see it, yeah. was there no like insurance or i mean i don't know how that works but not um well i guess where we are right now is yeah there's limits to what they got back you know looking at the if you look at the way that these chickens are raised it doesn't seem ideal i mean it's you know for the chickens but yet the way that these particular farmers talked about their job and talked about, I mean, the love for like, what they do and <laughs> they caring for their chickens, flock, yeah. like it, it actually provided a different side uh, perspective for me. Um, it kind of gave a face to what uh, a different, like what these growers can look like who are, I think, sometimes demonized. Um, for the way that they, you know, for their practices. But there was just, there was like a lot of love there and it really struck me and it made it even, and just like the devastation, they they were devastated for what happened to their flock, but not just because they, not financially, I mean, financial is a real issue, but it seemed like, you know, this was, I mean, devastating to to lose these animals. Yes, and the reporting on this, because we really focused on the crime of this case, Yeah, um, but the, the farmers we found were really devastated by the loss of their chickens, and they talked to their chickens, and yeah. I think they referred to them as, like, their children. They do. It's <laughs> also, like, the way, ugh, like, the way that they had to sort of deal with what happened um, in terms of, like, the cleanup. The cleanup of the, of the chickens that all died. Yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of wrenching to watch and report on. Yes, I agree with you. So what is the, one of the other thing, you know, in the other kind of 
half of the episode really focuses on JVS. What is JVS? So JVS is a multinational protein giant. It's one of the largest companies in the world. And JVS had purchased um, Pilgrim's Pride. Pilgrim's Pride is the company that these chicken farmers we feature all worked for. JBS is run by the Batista brothers, and they came out of um, beef in Brazil and with borrowing kind of money, basically federal government funds from Brazil, they used that to purchase companies like Pilgrim's Pride. The thing about JBS is JBS is, um, is involved in a myriad of scandals right now, and they go all the way up to... Um, the head of the Brazilian government in terms of spending hundreds of million dollars on bribes that they paid, having insider trading accusations. So um, so you have these earnest, hardworking farmers coming out of the South trying to raise these chickens, and they're all beholden to this large multinational co- company. Are they still owned by, does JBS still own Pilgrims? Yes, yeah. Um, so what happened with what was the the connection basically between JBS and what happened with these farmers? Is there any? Was it? Um, well, we know that JBS kind of helps perpetuate this tournament system and these kind of this kind of system and um, and style of management that these uh, farmers are beholden to. So they're perpetuating the problem at the they're at the, perpetuating the at the very yeah. best. Yeah, and I, I think that that's very conservative. If you look at the the numerous numerous lawsuits that are happening for Jewesley and Wesley Batista with JBS out of Brazil, where are they now? They're the in, Batista brothers. The Batista brothers are in Brazil. They were arrested. I don't like, know are, if they're they in jail? currently in jail right now. Hopefully, somewhere around there. <laughs> well, they have quite a few. Um, they have so many ongoing investigations that, yeah. Again. Again. The next <laughs> the next uh, episode, the future episodes. Okay, so we only have a few minutes. I'm gonna, I've got uh, more general questions for you. But first, I want to touch, like, quickly on honey. Um, because this was also, I mean, they're all fascinating. But this was something, you know, we've been hearing a lot about kind of the shortage of honeybees and um, in this country and how we know how valuable they are um, to agriculture in general. But can you just kind of give us, uh, what, like, what was Honeygate? So what's happening right now with honey is that um, Americans are consuming more honey than ever before. We love honey, and we don't just love honey in our tea. We love our honey in our cereal. We like it in our breads. We want it in our granola bars. So at the same time that we're consuming honey more than ever, because we also think it's you know healthier than, than sugar, mm-hmm. Our bees are dying and there's less honey here. So you have to make up for the loss. So where do you get your honey and where do food processors and producers who are under pressure to put honey in their foods get it? Well, they try to do whatever they can. And that in some cases involves getting honey that has come from places like China, where we had a lot of honey coming in, but there were um, kind of caps put on um, to prevent us from getting the Chinese honey. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what happened was instead, corrupt honey companies said, okay, your honey's not from China. It's actually from, you know, uh, it's from Thailand. And they just kind of repackage it. It's from Russia, but it's actually originally from honey. And so that... From China. From, sorry, it's from China. Yeah. And so one of the challenges we found in our reporting is that the honey originally coming from China could, in many cases, be, um, I'll say in some cases, can be contaminated with antibiotics. So you don't want antibiotic-laced honey. 
No. No. Not, not really. <laughs> and you also don't want fake honey. You don't want honey that something that's disguised as honey when it is actually not. And that happens? That happens as well. How, what do they use? How do you how do you fake honey? Um, you can have a type of, you know, like syrup. Okay. Yeah. So is this another issue where there's limited transparency to the supply chain and to what's coming in from other countries? Yes. The honey industry has done a tremendous job at almost like self-regulating and mm. um, testing and processors are very aggressive about making sure that the honey that they're cons- they're purchasing is is what you know is the real deal. Mm-hmm. But that really comes from self-regulation. And that's after the federal government has done extensive extensive um, litigation in this area. Really? Yeah, so with Honeygate, you had two different cases and you had it was like two dozen people who were charged and um, you had I want to say roughly 10 people who went to prison for this and then you have fugitives who are still out there um how does this there seems to be one of the kind of common themes in a lot of these episodes is that you have you know it's hard for the u.s for domestic producers to compete with um you know outside for from products coming from outside of the u.s so with fish a lot of our fish is the majority of our fish is imported um honey you have issues with um, you know, cheap honey flooding the market that could likely not be from honey at, at all. Similarly with the garlic episode, which we didn't talk a lot about, where you have um, an influx of super cheap garlic flooding the market from prison labor in China. Um, you know, what kind of, what can the government be doing to regulate this more extensively? Or is this just free trade and, and the, you know, pros out, outweigh the cons? Um, well, I think you'd need more resources um, you know, and speaking on behalf of my reporting it for this series, there are limited resources to regulate garlic. I, I think there's a lot of hardworking government workers who are doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to catch a thief and keep up with a thief. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. In any of these industries. So tying it back to trade, um, I'm finding in my reporting that a lot of the most aggressive stuff is happening within industry. And then that will be kind of supplemented by like convictions that happen with Honeygate and the you know the prosecutor's office in Chicago mm-hmm. taking this on mm-hmm. but a, a lot of it also has to come from the industry and i guess you could say in that sense that it can come from consumers if i'm a if i'm a food company and you know that i'm going to not buy your product unless you're really aggressive about making sure that the honey's not contaminated, sourcing the garlic mm-hmm. then you're going to act then you're going to do something cuz i'm making my decision with my with my wallet. Right. So I guess the my question that I want to ask is about to what extent does a does a, an America first kind of, you know, policy what would that be a good thing for a lot of these issues, for a lot of these topics that we just talked about? It's a great question. So right now, um, and this is speaking of my reporting from Politico, we're finding that farmers are have been you know, the vast majority have been very pro-Trump mm-hmm. and a lot of farmers have benefited tremendously from deals like NAFTA and are trying to preserve these deals and um, have argued that they're less dependent on government subsidies and have begin- been able to kind of play in the market. We're, we are a major agriculture exporter and that's been like an, a, a good thing for us. That's mm-hmm. something that other countries want. So in that sense... That's kind of the viewpoint of what I'm reporting on from the farmers. 
I'm not exactly answering your question. But well, it's, it's a, a very really open-ended to- tough question. <laughs> and also, uh, you know, I'm not one to pitch uh, like a pro-Trump to, you know, I am, it's no secret on the on the show, very um, not supportive of the current administration. It's <laughs> putting it mildly. But, you know, I guess I, I am wondering, like I see a lot of these issues and food in general, and it's not just the issues that you've kind of, that you've touched on in the series, but more broadly speaking, um, I think that we need to do a better job of su- supporting domestic growers, um, you know, domestic farmers and products that are originate here, especially in the agricultural industry, because we do see so few um, independent farmers, growers, uh, what have you. Um, And I think that I think that's a big problem. And I wonder if any of these kind of like America first, we must we must really put preference on the goods that are produced here could be beneficial for people in the agricultural industry. So I guess I just, you know, these are, I'm, I'm completely rambling right now, but I just, (laughs) you know, I, I guess it's just something that I've been thinking about because I think that a lot of these issues, um, could be helped along. The small guy could be helped by protectionist, um, policies in some way. Now, I don't know if they're, if that's, if it's basically, if it's worth it, if the pros, you know, outweigh the cons or what that looks like. It's just something that I'm thinking out loud on and that I want to cut, like, all of this question (laughs) in post. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I think, well, also, when you talk about the small farmers right now, I mean, we're dealing with a moment where they've had a really few rough years with weather. So, yeah. There's a lot of discussions happening right now about trade and NAFTA, and there's also a lot of discussions happening about weather and, you hmm. know, just the cold snap that we had recently. How did that affect wheat? Well, that wheat is a huge global player right now. Yeah. Um, and beef. We've had some really brutal years with beef, but beef picked up in 2017. So um, so you have farmers dealing with trade and Mother Nature and the government, <laughs> and they're all a lot. I think a lot of what you're talking about, though, is going to come up in 2018 with the Farm Bill. And yeah. you're going to hear a lot more of these voices and a lot more of these debates really kind of teased out of what's best for the small farmer mm-hmm. um, and and what what approaches um okay so two more questions i know and um you know i basically in your opinion you reported on all of these you know you were involved with all these episodes which one did you find the most compelling compelling in terms of which one was the most fun for you to work on oh they're all fun i want to say that we um for rotten we had uh had four investigative reporters help me with all the reporting Mm because as you can see they're very reporting intensive yeah um and i want to give them all a shout out um so i loved reporting on the garlic episode because it involved farmers from china and farmers from new mexico kind of facing very similar challenges and problems and at the end of the day still trying to sit down for a meal with her family mm-hmm. so I love that I love reporting on the Codfather that just journalistically is very rich also because his um, his violations stretched over three decades mm-hmm. so the Freedom of Information Act requests the agencies that he had committed crimes with happened there's there so <sighs> many of them so it was very reporting rich mm-hmm. what one thing or two things did you learn that that you that really surprised you like you know so much about these you know this field in general what did you like learn that really shocked you that shocked me kind of or that you were surprised to learn about um there's a lot of things that really surprised me 
um, that were just kind of right in front of me. I think the, the prevalence of allergies and nut allergies in our society today is fascinating and shocking. Mm-hmm. And we still don't have amazing answers about why that's happening. So, But we live in a very different world today than we did in the past when it comes to allergies. Speaking of that, by the way, we didn't talk about this um, in the show, but I found it fascinating. So they say that what one of the ways that they're looking at treating this and maybe even present preventing it um in some cases is to kind of introduce small amounts of those you know allergens or those those foods um into somebody's diet gradually so you build up an immunity that seems like such a like yeah it seems like so obvious basically like why haven't we been doing that all along well also what's happening with allergies today i mean i feel like growing up you didn't I didn't know people with allergies like we they have now. Yeah, absolutely not. They're also deadly. I mean, yeah. so it's it's not simply like, oh, if I have a couple peanuts, it might be all right. And I spoke with one mom on this who, who has introduced this with her son to kind of build up his immunity. Mm-hmm. She spent a lot of nights in emergency rooms thinking that her During son could die. Yeah. Went in trying to build up the immunity. In trying to build up the immunity. So it's not that simple. <laughs> it's definitely not that simple. And it can be affected if you have, if you're dehydrated, if you're oh. sick, if you haven't had enough to eat. Um, so, you know, anytime you're run down, you haven't gotten enough sleep. So, so there's a lot of variables there. Okay. Final question. Um, anything that you... Like, what do you want? Is there anything you want to cover next, basically? It, you know, if you were still, you're now you're a Politico now, but you know, if you were ever to kind of revisit this series or or consult on this, what would you say the next topics um, under kind of food and crime should be the next big issues? I mean, there's this wonder, all these wonderful frontiers, and there's this big world that we did not get to even, you know, dip our toe into. And we did some great you know, international reporting, but there are whole markets that I'd love to to do more and explore the traceability of. Like an example? Give us an example. I mean, I think India is like a rich, wonderful market that I'd love to report on. You know, I, I think that's broad and, you know, not giving much away when you say that India is fascinating and interesting. Um, and looking at other parts, other parts of the world where our food is coming from, we're, we're just not, we're completely turning a blind eye. Right. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there um, for now. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Okay. So um, the series is called Rotten, and it's available now on Netflix. Um, For all of you who haven't uh, watched it, I suggest you do so immediately. I want to thank uh, our sponsors, of course, for their generous support, as well as our engineer, Vidor Hirscht. Show music is by Tim Archer, and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't uh, done so already, please subscribe and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.